This is Hurt and Fetters, Theological Reflections on Criminal Justice. Conversation based on the book Hurt with Fetters, hosted by Pastor Greg Smith and author Jason Karsh. This is a podcast for people who want to see ways in which Christian theology ought to shape our understanding of the current narrative of criminal justice. All right, so welcome to our podcast, the second edition of our podcast, Hurt with Fetters. Uh, I am Greg Smith, and I'm sitting here with Jason Karch. In our last episode, we heard his story. He has been locked up in the Texas Department of Criminal Justice system for 21 years now, working on a aggravated life sentence. And Jason is a convicted felon, but I would say at heart, he is a brother in Christ and a theologian. And of course, I come at this as a pastor of a local church and a volunteer in the prison system. So Jason, first of all, welcome. It's good to see you today. Well, thank you, Pastor, again. You know, it's always a joy to do things like this. It is. It is. Now, talking about the issues of criminal justice and how a believer, a Christian should think about these things and what should inform our understanding of how we administer justice in this country and how that works out on a practical level inside the criminal justice system. So Jason, I want to begin by just asking you to talk about how you personally have come to place that you're at in terms of your thinking and your understanding of these issues. So today we'll be dealing with, like you said, the place that a believer stands that informs our understandings of not just issues of criminal justice, but you know, informs our understanding of the world that we live in. Well, I didn't grow up in church and things like that, so people would talk about the Bible. I was fundamentally ignorant of the things of God. I had no idea. I couldn't look at a map and differentiate between England and Israel. Had no idea that the Bible had been written originally in any other language besides English. In my mind, it began in 1611 with King James. I felt like he came up with that as a pretty effective form of law to control people. So I had absolutely no understanding of the Word of God whatsoever. But when I was converted to Christianity, like we spoke about last week, and came to know Christ in an administrative segregation cell in 2004, my understanding of the reality of God changed, obviously. And so to try to get to understand who this God was as he has revealed himself, I began to invest time in reading uh, the Word of God and studying the Word of God. And through that, I come to a place to where I understand the Word of God to be authoritative, inerrant, and inspired by God. I think for me, when you think of a worldview, how it is that we see reality, any worldview has to answer four basic questions. Where we came from, origins, how did we get here, morality, How do we differentiate between what's right and what's wrong? Meaning and purpose. Why are we even here to begin with? What are we supposed to do while we're here? And destiny. What happens when we die? What goes on when it's all said and done? And just in the context of my own personal studies, I believe, whether you're speaking philosophically, ideologically, religiously, I think the Christian worldview has the best leg to stand on because of our understanding that the Word of God is inspired and errant and authoritative. So that's how I come to the place to where I see the Word of God like I see it. Okay, and so it is the Bible or the Word of God that informs your worldview. And in that, a part of your worldview and a big part of your worldview is the criminal justice system and the way that 
laws and justice, I guess, if you will, is prosecuted or takes place here in our country. But before we move on with that, uh, let me just ask you to talk just a little bit more. So you came to the place where you were convicted, you were convinced that the Bible is the Word of God. You use the words inerrant, inspired, authoritative. So first of all, what does that mean to you? Okay, in terms of inerrancy, I believe that the Bible is without error in everything that it speaks to. Now you have people that will say, well, the Bible tells us nothing about uh, microbiology. You know, well, it's not a science textbook, so we're not speaking about scientific principles and things like that, but the things that the Bible speaks to, uh, it is inerrant. There are no errors propositionally in what it speaks to. Okay, so it is inerrant, so you can trust it, believe it. What about inspired? What does that mean? To well, I think it, the, the word God breathed appears in Paul's letter to Timothy where I think God moves on the heart and minds of men to pen these things that we have recorded for us in the scriptures for the purpose of revealing himself and his plan and his purpose for humanity to us. And so that's what I mean by inspired by God. You know, you and I had conversations previously about people like Shakespeare and his inspiration mm -hmm. being attributed to people like that. But when we speak about inspiration in this sense, we're talking about God moving on the hearts and the minds of men to reveal to humanity what they need to know about this God and about his plan for our lives. Okay. And so if it is inerrant and inspired, then it must be authoritative, I suppose. So what do you mean by it is authoritative? Okay. So this is really the, the nuts and bolts of this right here because, you know, indeed, if it is inerrant and inspired, then that itself ought to lend some authority to it. But think about, you know, just the United States of America. So if we have any question of law, you know, ultimately all questions of, of law will find themselves appealing to the authority of the Constitution of the United States. Okay. Is this commensurate with the, the Constitution of the United States? Because the thing that shapes the laws of this nation, you know, it is the governing document of the United States. And in the same way, for Christians, the Bible possesses that authority, that should ultimately be the place that we appeal to, that we look to, that shapes our understanding of all of these different issues. So that's what I mean by authoritative. It is what guides and orders the steps of our lives, shapes our understanding of all of these different issues. And if we're looking to some other authority, then we really supplanted the authority of the Word of God. What you're saying is, if, if I'm not someone who takes the Bible in this way and lets it inform my conduct, my understanding, my belief, but ultimately my conduct, then that's really not Christian or... What I would say, if somebody who professes to be a Christian is not allowing the Word of God to shape their worldview 
order their understanding of reality in that way. I wouldn't make an accusation to say, well, you're not a Christian. What I would do is ask the question, then what is your authority? What is the worldview that's shaping how you see these things? Because at the end of the day, what I'm trying to do is to show people that this worldview concept, which I construe as stories or narratives, right? some story told about origins, morality, meaning and purpose and destiny. There's a story that's shaping our lives. If the Bible is not doing that, what is the story that's shaping their lives? Okay, but someone might say, but hold on just a minute. The Bible deals with issues things like salvation in your relationship with God. But in other issues of life, the Bible deals with salvation and those type of things. But when we talk about things like criminal justice and you know whatever, does the Bible really speak to my life in that way or does it have authority in my life over those type of issues? Isn't it just a book of religion about how I relate to God? Yeah, I think it definitely speaks to salvation, obviously. But it also speaks to these other things because in as much as we are saved, we're still in the world. And if it was just about salvation, then I think the Bible would be a much shorter book. If it was just about salvation, we don't need anything after the Gospels. You know, you could do away with Acts and all of Paul's letters as, as the Christian church begins to emerge on the world scene. How believers are trying to figure out how to be believers, how to be saved people in the world that they live in. You see how Paul is addressing the church in Corinth. Uh, social issues and cultural issues that they're dealing with that need to be thought through or shaped by who God is and what it is that he's done for them, as opposed to how they had always done it. You know, so I think the Bible speaks beyond salvation, certainly speaks to salvation, but it speaks beyond that as well. How do we live as saved people now in the world we find ourselves in? So the Bible would be more than just about being saved or your relationship with God, but the way you live actually is a part of your relationship with God. In fact, I think of what Jesus had to say in the Sermon on the Mount, which is basically is this is the way you live as a kingdom of God person, right? So if you are in the kingdom of God, this is the way you're going to live. And, he's, and he lays out just some of the basic issues of life. So foundationally, I think what I hear you saying is, is that it is the Bible that informs or, or guides or directs our life in every aspect or every part of our life, the way we think about things and the way we act or live, right? Would I be articulating what you're trying to say? Absolutely. Let me, let me give you an example because this cuts, this cuts both ways, Pastor, even though I'm addressing this to believers who are in the free world. One of my pet peeves ministering in a prison context is I always run across this claim that, you know, Brother Jason, hey, I'm a Christian man, but you got to understand this is still the penitentiary. And the implication there is, is that in order for me to be able to survive in this context, I have to act penitentiary. I have to act like the penitentiary says that I'm supposed to act, which translates in a number of different crazy ways sure. in this context. But my immediate response to that is, so it's the penitentiary ultimately the norms and the standards of the penitentiary that is shaping your reality or that is your authority it, that is your authority that is determining how it is that you live and it doesn't matter whether you're in prison whether you're standing behind a pulpit whether you're sacking groceries at the supermarket whatever the case may be whether you're arguing a criminal case in some district court if you are a christian nothing outside of the word of god gets to shape your reality period okay
So the verse that kind of comes to my mind here is Romans 12, 1 and 2. Don't be conformed to this world. Don't let the world press you into its mold, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So you have, you've entitled this first chapter of your book. We talked last week really just about the introduction as we introduced this issue. But you've entitled this chapter, Reflections on a Place. And what you are referring to there in terms of place is the question of where do I stand or what is it that informs my view of all world issues, in this case or in particular issues of criminal justice. Would you just expound upon that a little bit? Again, it goes back to the, the place we stand that shapes our understanding of criminal justice, issues associated with criminal justice, is the Word of God. And you mentioned Romans 12, 1 and 2, where verse 2 it says, Be not conformed to this present world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Well, if you look at the verb, do not be conformed, conformed there is in the active voice. So that's something that we do. We conform ourselves to this present world. But the transformation, be transformed by the renewing of your mind, is in the passive voice. So something else is transforming us. While we seek to be conformed to certain things, something else is transforming us. And I think it is the Word of God, the Bible, the place that we stand that transforms our understanding of all of these issues. Okay, so the question then, this particular issue is why should I care? Okay, so I'm a Christian, I'm a pastor, I'm whoever. And uh, and there are things going on in the criminal justice system, in prisons that I honestly don't have any idea. In fact, uh, as I was reading uh, this part of uh, your book, I thought back about 10 or 12 years ago when I first came to this area and uh, saw for the first time this maximum security prison just basically in my backyard. And I drove past this prison, and just from the from the road, it's it's a very imposing and maybe even frightening. Uh, you know, you see the razor wire and everything else like that, and the buildings uh, which were built probably back in the 20s or 30s, I suppose, maybe even some of them before that. It looks it's a very imposing, almost frightening, you know, structure. And driving back and forth past it weekly or monthly, you know, the the thought occurred to me honestly, that maybe I ought to, ought to do something or there's something that I should even care about, but I'm not exactly sure what. So the question becomes, why should I care even about what takes place inside those razor wires to, you know, whoever or whatever? I don't know, but basically, why should I even care? Yeah, and I think just that question alone indicates that you care about being a Christian. For somebody to say that they don't care, that has to fold itself back on the question of what do you care about being a Christian at all? Because when we think about why people are in prison, it is because that they have on some level violated the law. Some ways may seem trivial in our minds why people end up in prison. And sometimes we, we think that, hey, yeah, that guy probably needs to be separated from society. However that translates, ultimately it boils down to somebody has broken the law and has been separated from society, placed in this type of environment. Well, as a Christian, because of sin, we're lawbreakers. We have broken the law of God. And as a result of that, we are separated from a relationship to the one who created us. But he offered us salvation. 
so that we can be reconciled back to Himself. Just from that basic understanding of salvation, it ought to make us care about people who have run afoul of the law, or separated from society because of that, that somehow they're still people and they might need to be reconciled back to society. So that ought to generate some kind of care in our hearts. Now, what an individual should do about that is a whole other question. But from a pastoral perspective, from somebody who proclaims the Word of God week in and week out, I think what they can do is to begin to inform their people about these issues from the Word of God, from the pulpit. So what exactly are the issues or how specifically maybe does God's Word or does the Bible speak to these issues? So I'm a pastor, I'm standing in the pulpit Sunday after Sunday, and there's a lot of things going on in culture that I want to bring the Word of God to bear to in the minds of uh, you know the people who who sit in my congregation or who sit under my preaching so so how exactly i guess does the word of god come to bear in this particular situation and um and how might i apply it to the issues of criminal justice okay so you kind of address the idea of, of addressing certain social issues that go on in our culture and one of the things you know you just listen to uh, christian radio and things like that back when you know the supreme court was making a decision in reference to marriage so any pastor probably at that point when they come across genesis or maybe first corinthians chapter seven specific texts that deal with marriage they would probably bring up this particular thing that is going on in society in order to give a biblical understanding of marriage to the people in the congregation. Well, in the same way, the Bible speaks to who we are as human beings. And there is a story being told. There's a worldview or a narrative that is being displayed to the world about people who commit crimes. You know, as early as 1841, I make the, the point uh, later in the book, as early as 1841, people begin to develop an ethnography of delinquency to be able to capture criminals as a subclass of human. There's something biological going on with somebody that commits a crime that makes them different, biologically different, than somebody who doesn't. And so now you have a separation of ideas of good people and bad people. The good people are not those who are predisposed to commit crimes. Bad people are predisposed to commit crimes. And it's the responsibility of the good people to deal with the bad. Well, that is a narrative, a story that runs completely contrary to the story given to us in the Bible that Which kind of is. La- lays out this idea that we are all created equal in the, in the image of God with inherent dignity and value. And we are all sinners. So some are good sinners, some are not so good sinners. And so I think your point would be then there's no basic difference between someone walking around in the free world and someone walking around inside the the halls of this institution other than you know if I'm here I I did something that society or the the law if you will says we got to separate you from everybody for this reason and whether it's for punishment or rehabilitation or a reconciliation or whatever it is that the criminal justice system is trying to do, and those are issues that we'll cover later. Basically, your point would be we're all equal before God. I mean, 
We're all created in his image, but we're all marred by sin to whatever extent, but there's no levels of sin. So you make the point here that it is the Bible, it is God's word that creates for us significance, that everyone has significance, whether you are you know, the most successful person in the world with all the money in the world, or you are locked up in ADSEG for you know, the most heinous crime. You, you still have significance before God or in this world, right? Exactly. So it is the uh, sapiential authority of the Word of God or the, the fact that it informs our thinking or our wisdom or it gives us wisdom that provides thematic and causal links to reality. So it, it first of all allows me to see that or recognize it and then to live it. So there are alternative narratives, okay? So there is the narrative that, that God has given us in his word of who he is, who we are, how we relate to him, how we live in this world. There are alternative narratives out there as well. And uh, this may go back to the confirmation or transformation. So back to the main point, I guess, are we conformed to these other narratives or do we transform them? Because there's a narrative right now that is shaping the reality inside this institution and inside the prison system in general in Texas and across this nation. And so how or what is the role, the responsibility, or the ability of a believer, a Christian, to either be shaped by that narrative or to attempt to reshape the narrative? That's what we're calling for, right? Yes, and, and you know, of course, there's the question of whether or not Christ changes culture, whether or not you know, we should be apart from culture, or whatever, but I like the way that Dr. King uh, put it. You know, the church ought to be basically, you know, the prophet. You know, it ought to speak critically against the culture, against these things, and really kind of hold their feet to the fire to see whether or not their narrative has the real uh, explanatory power to affirm why it is they're doing the things they're doing. Why, why do they uh, see criminal justice in this way? And so I think that we have an opportunity as Christians, as the church of Jesus Christ, to transform that as we're not conformed to it. What exactly is the narrative then that is being, that is, I guess, predominant or that is shaping or forming what actually happens or what criminal justice system does or what it looks like in our day? Well, I have the reflection on stories that fleshes that out a little bit, but basically what it is, there is an understanding born out of legal positivism that makes a distinction between good people and bad people. There is an idea that criminals are predisposed to do bad. They, are, they can't be rehabilitated. So the emphasis there is, is the good people in the world 
need to ensure that these bad people are prevented from doing bad things. If that means separating them from society, whether or not we warehouse them in some institution for decades and decades or whatever that may look like, something has to be done to get these people away from the good people. What Levi Strauss termed anthropoemic, we vomit people out of society that we see as less than ourselves or worse than ourselves. So there needs to be a separation of these bad people. Now, what that generally looks like is we separate them by retribution, extend these retributive punishments to the bad people so that we ain't got to worry about them anymore. Lock them up, throw away a key, basically, yeah. So how is that different, or how does that violate maybe a biblical worldview that would, or how might that be different? How might a biblical worldview be different, and how might it work to change that narrative, or what should the narrative look like? First, there is no distinction between good and bad people in the biblical worldview. We're people who are created in the image of God again, uh, and based on that, we are infused with an inherent dignity and value. Now, we also share an equality as sinners in the eyes of God who need to be reconciled back to God based on our separation from Him. But on a horizontal level, the relationship that we share with one another, we have to see each other through the lens of that same equality that the Bible describes for us. We can't make distinctions between each other. And so, even when it comes to issues of law, what is the purpose of that? Is it to cause us to separate ourselves from one another? Or is it for the purpose of bringing us back together, restoring a relationship that has been ruptured by violations of law? And so the Bible, I think, gives us a, a comprehensive way of seeing. And by that, it gives us a, a place to stand. All right. So is there any person, any human being, that is beyond the redemptive or restorative power of God that the Bible basically proclaims? Is there anybody that's so far gone, I guess is the question, that they can't be brought back or restored in the way you just said? I, I don't think so. You know, I made the point in a letter I wrote recently, I had read somewhere where somebody said that time is the great leveler and I was explaining that I didn't I didn't really agree with that because time I don't think can stand against obstinance you take somebody that's hard-headed hard-hearted and you can lock him up for 40 years 50 years lock him up until he he breathes his last and what has it done what has that time done for obstinate nothing still hard-hearted still hard-headed and I made the point however I didn't agree with time being the great leveler. I said, I, I thought love is the great leveler. When the love of God is shed abroad in the heart of even the most obstinate man, when he can understand the love of God, he's redeemable. And this is the place that we stand, and this is as a child of God or as a believer. And what we're talking about here is how should I view, based upon my biblical lens, how should I view the issues of criminal justice, how those who break the law are judged, how they are treated, how they are dealt with in a system that 
theoretically is designed to maintain order and keep the peace and those type of things. But how do I think about and speak to the way these things flesh out in, in real life here in the prison? Jason, thank you for time today. And thank you, listeners, for joining us. And we will see you next week. God bless. Hopefully this has been encouraging while also challenging you to think through these issues in a new and more concrete way. Listen next time for our conversation on further theological reflections on criminal justice. Thanks for listening to Hurt With Fetters, a podcast that helps us to see ways in which Christian theology ought to shape our understanding of the current narrative of criminal justice. The book Hurt With Fetters, Theological Reflections on Criminal Justice is available at Amazon.com.